In life, when you try something new, it's not always going to work out perfect. It's going to sometimes not fall completely flat. Well, the lesson is, well, you say to yourself, well, what can I learn from that? Other than that, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> that little clip came from my interview with Dave Combs. He is such a cool guy. He has a story of, you know, music and just finding himself through his music. And I just love talking with him. And he's built a business from it. Really cool guy. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. So let's just jump right into it. Welcome to Yield Today with Alan Canland. I have Dave Combs here and just really excited to talk with him about his story about getting into music, leaving his job as a computer programmer, and just uh, being able to change the world with his music. So thank you for coming on, Dave. Well, thank you, Dallin. I'm glad to be here with you on this Friday afternoon. It's great. It's a beautiful time we live in that we're able to to do this without really much hang up. So appreciate you making the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You got it. Okay. So we start your journey with, uh, I know one of my favorite stories from you is that you worked on a, in potatoes and got to <laughs> provide potatoes for your elementary school. And that was like your first real entrepreneurial endeavor. Like, Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, I grew up in in East Tennessee and we were a family. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't think of ourselves as poor because we had everything else that you needed. We just didn't have a lot of money. And so we I lived on with my parents on an acre of land and when I was in the 6th grade, I needed to have I think I was also working on a Boy Scout merit badge. So so this was my project for Boy Scouts as well, but it also was an opportunity for me to learn something about business. I think it was a, a merit badge on a, a business, operating a business. And uh, so I decided that we could, I could use, you know, a bunch of our property that we had to raise some potatoes. So my mom and dad said, you know, okay, that'd be, that'd be fine. And just uh, they helped me learn how to, you know, pick out the seed potatoes and you cut the eyes out of the potato, you know, the part that's going to sprout and, and how to plant those in the ground, how to prepare the prop, you know, the, the soil for planting and how to, how to dig your rows and make them straight and everything. So I, I learned a lot about how to raise some potatoes. And my object was to raise enough to have some for sale to my elementary school. And so I would basically sell the, bush, the bushels of potatoes to my school. So I did that that summer and, <laughs> and I was, I basically I babied those potato plants. I treated them like, you know, they were just golden. I I dared a weed to come up in that garden. <laughs> I was down there every day pulling up weeds or anything. Well, that fall, and by the way, I wish I had a picture today of my potato patch because it was I don't know, probably it was a half an acre of potatoes. And the plants were I'm I'm I'm, I'm sure they were probably almost three feet tall. They were really healthy, deep green. You could just tell by looking at them how healthy they were. Well, that fall, when it came time to dig potatoes, that was always, that was the hard part of the job because those, and that's why you plant them in a potato hill, as we call it, because if you didn't, they would be so far down in the ground, you'd never get to them. So you plant them on a hill so that when you dig down, you don't have to dig so far. Well, when I would dig up my potatoes, 
I didn't have to dig but about five feet. And I had a bushel of potatoes. I mean, they were prolific. And I'm talking about these big baker-sized potatoes, too. Look Good looking. So I, I don't remember how many bushel I sold, but I fed potatoes to my elementary school for weeks. And, I, and at $5 a bushel, I think is what I sold them for. So that was my introduction to running your own business. And I had to keep records, you know, how much did the seed potatoes cost? How much the fertilizer and all this kind of thing? How much did I take in? And so I kept good records. But that was a lesson in how to run a very small business, even if it was just one product of potatoes. So that was when I was about 12 years old. And uh, so from then on, you know, I was probably always pretty much entrepreneurial. I had a paper route, you know, after that. And so, I, you know, I was always looking for ways to help make some money for the family. To, you know, we needed every every bit we could we could have. You know, we, we back then we, we made our milk from powdered milk. That was uh, the cheapest way to get milk for us. So even though we didn't have a lot of money, we were in uh, entrepreneurial and and enterprising enough to figure out how to make things happen. So that was, you're right, that was the beginning, I guess, of my spark of entrepreneurism. That's cool. Yeah. And that's such a flex too. Like You can say that over and over and again. Like I got <laughs> to feed like my elementary school with potatoes for weeks like that is just amazing and that you're able to like keep that enterprise going there weren't any like things that fell through the cracks or anything like that nobody got upset you didn't get the yelp of your day people like don't (laughs) listen to this kid he's all talk no show what kind of what kind of uh impact did that have like on your overall heart and desire like an overall outlook on life for after that? Well, I think, you know, when you're, when you're around people who support what you do and are encouraging, that means so much. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of kids today are not in that, that environment. They don't have somebody that's encouraging them and saying, you know, young man, you could grow up and be a, you can be a president of a company or you can do this or that or the other. Some of them, they're just struggling to exist. And I really feel for those kids. But uh, I was fortunate that I had around me family and friends and relatives that were all supportive. I, I can't recall anybody telling me, Dave, you're not a, you, you won't ever do this or Dave, you'll never go to college or whatever. No, it was quite the opposite. They were encouraging to say, you know, even though our, our ancestors didn't go to college, but you're going to go to college. <laughs> so I knew when I got out of high school, I don't care. I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, but I was going to college. That is for sure. That's good. Let's talk about like the overall experience of you being in college. You know, I heard on other podcasts, you're really fascinated by computers and that kind of led to you pursuing that and like studying that kind of break that down more for us. Well, when I went to college, I definitely wanted to be a math major. I was always good in mathematics from, I guess, from my eighth grade on, I, I really knew that I wanted to do something that had to do with mathematics. And uh, I love science and, and math. I'm a very, uh, I guess, a analytical person. You know, I guess you call it left brain oriented pretty much. Well, when I got to college, uh, even before I got to college, I had decided I wanted to do something with computers. I had, this was in 1965. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, 1965 when I graduated from high school. And if you go back and research what computers looked like, in 1965, <laughs> you know, 
they were bigger than my piano and only had 30k of memory. I mean, it was, it was, they were huge, but they were fascinating. It was a brand new technology. And I knew I wanted to have something to do with that in my career. And I was blessed enough to have an opportunity to work in the university computer center as a part-time student employee to help pay some, some of my expenses and work for a, a man who was in the math department. We didn't have a computer science major back then. It was all in the math department. But I worked for a man, a professor in the math department, Stan Johnson, who hired me to work in the computer center. And he taught me, he was also a very good mentor. He taught me more than computers. He was a good example of a human being and a leader to me. But I learned computer programming. And so by the time I graduated from college, I had four years of experience working in a computer center. Well, this was 1969 when I graduated. Western Electric was a, it was a very large corporation, part of the Bell system, AT&T, and they were highly into technical stuff. They're, they were into the missile defense program and all kinds of really technical stuff. And you may remember the, the term Bell Labs. Well, Bell Labs was also a part of the Bell system, highly technical engineers inventing things. They invented the laser and transistors and all kinds of things. So when I got ready to graduate from college, I interviewed with Western Electric and they hired me on the spot. I had four, I already had four years experience programming and, and your kids today can identify with that because a lot of kids, and I call them kids because everybody seems to be younger than me these days, but they, you know, they know how to do coding. You know, there a lot of these uh, high school students, they're great coders and they probably know more about computer programming now than I did when I graduated from four years of college. So those skills and abilities to do coding and the, the, the logical thinking, the creating of apps and the creating of solutions to problem and being able to use, you know, this, I mean, whether it's your phone that's got, you know, how many gigabytes of memory or whatever in it with the power. By the way, there's more power in this phone right here probably than was in the entire United States in 1969 when I graduated. So anyway, that was an, a blessing to me that I graduated and was able to start my career as a computer programmer. I stayed with AT&T Western Electric for 22 and a half years. And most of that time, even though I progressed up the ranks into management and that kind of thing, I still stayed in the technology arena. You know, everything that I dealt with, whether I was a manager of a, a manufacturing a, a thousand people manufacturing things in a plant or whether I was helping to implement manufacturing software packages throughout factories. All of that had to do with technology, which was, I gathered, I gained from my college education and my whole career up to that point. So that's kind of my background in the professional world of my career as, as a, uh, a technology kind of person. That's good. Yeah. So like, Diving a little bit deeper into the overall college experience for you, what were some of the habits and things that you just kept doing that you believe helped lead to your success? I mean, there's just there's always the possibility of falling off the boat with different things. And somebody says, oh, I'm going to do this and that before I graduate from college. And then they get caught up in something else. You know, what kind of helped you stay away from that? Well, I guess it was the fact that I was an employee. I was hired to help work in the computer center. So I did have a responsible job to where I'd, I couldn't just do what I wanted to do or skip class or skip that. I couldn't skip my job. My, my boss, he'd come hunt me down. said, all right, Combs, you get back to work. But I enjoyed my work so much that I would never have done that anyway. 
But the, the lessons I think I learned from just the, the programming side of the things, I learned more from my mistakes as a programmer. And I think everybody that else that is a coder or a programmer will tell you the same thing. You learn more from what you did not do right or how it failed or, or crashed on you. You learn more from that than if you wrote it down and it worked right just as perfect first time. So there's a lesson, I think, in that that applies to life as well as to computer programming. In life, when you try something new, it's not always going to work out perfect. It's going to sometimes not fall completely flat. Well, the lesson is, well, you say to yourself, well, what can I learn from that? Other than that, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> or I've, I've learned one more thing that I don't want to do. Uh, and I'll, I'm fond of saying that as well. And even in career paths, if you do, do a certain job and you don't like that job, get out of it and do something else and say, I've learned that that's something, one more thing I don't want to do. <laughs> so there are lessons that you can learn in life that, that you can just keep applying them and, and keep moving forward in, in your career and your, your career path, whatever it is. And you may have multiple career paths. I think today's young people have a wonderful opportunity of going in many directions. They, with the technology like you and I are talking on, you're halfway across the country, or more than halfway across the country from me, and yet we're right like we're right next door. Young people can work anywhere in the world that they want to, practically doing anything they want to from, from home or a, a vacation, wherever you are, as long as you can get to the Internet, you can work. Well, we didn't, I didn't have that capability and luxury when I was growing up and starting my career. But today's young folks are really fortunate to have that. And so they can take off on, they can have two or three things going at the same time. And I think many young people actually do until they find one that they really are passionate about and say, okay, this is it. I'm going to focus on this and let the others slide for a while, but I'm going to go with this one. That's good. I had somebody else on, I think it was Miles Wakeham, and he talked about like recognizing those waves as they come in and getting on the, like normally like when you're at the beach and you see this wave coming in, you're like, okay, I have to go get to that wave. You get know, you have, to, yeah, you have to leave at a certain time or you're going to miss it when it crashes. So it sounds like you caught the wave with different opportunities and just, and just wrote it and had a good time. And when you weren't, riding a wave, you were looking up, you were looking up, you're looking for the next one. You weren't, you know, stuck in anything. You were still chugging along. So it's that's a great analogy. Yes. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. I love analogies. We could talk about analogies all day long. <laughs> we really could. I love, love analogies. So we go into, you know, your upbringing again, you love playing music with your dad. You know, there's a lot of uh, power and, and beauty in that. How did that lead to you eventually writing Rachel's song, which is what really kickstarted your your business and everything? Well, I, and looking back over my my musical life and, and thinking about you know where did all this start? I don't know how much of a person's skills and talents and abilities come from their DNA, and their ancestors, or how much of it is actually learned as you're you're going through life. But in my particular case, my mother and father both played the piano. My father played by ear, and he learned from his mother. His mother, my granny Combs, she was born in 1894 up in uh, southwestern Virginia uh, in the tobacco farming families. That's All my mother and father, both sides of the family, were farmers. And so my grandmother Combs, she was very musical. She could play and sing. She, she had, I don't know, I really, I wish now that I had asked her to tell me more about how she learned how to play. 
but she could play by ear. She could sit down at an old pump organ, which was before electricity. You pumped the, with your feet, you pumped the bellows to pump the air through the organ. <clears throat> but she could play the piano or a pump organ just beautifully and sing, love to sing. But her other instrument she loved to play is this one. And this is my grandma Combs's uh, auto harp. She gave this to me or willed it to me upon her passing. In the case right over here, it has a note that says, for my grandson, David Combs, and this harp belongs to him. So this is my granny's auto harp, and it is a beautiful instrument. It's, it's simple to play. A little kid can just, if they can press a button and string their, their finger on it, sounds great. Well, I can just... <laughs> And, and she would know how to play it really lively. And she could play that and sing. And I can just hear her now singing Amazing Grace or other her old favorite hymns. And so being around music, I think it kind of got absorbed, I think, into my, the pores of my body. And, uh, and so I, I can never remember, for example, I can never remember a time when I couldn't play something on the piano. Uh, my father, I'm sure, put me up on his knee probably as soon as I could sit there and probably showed me how to play something with the, the notes. And so I grew up playing the piano and I did take piano lessons when I was eight or nine years old for a couple of years. So I could read music, but I basically taught myself how to play by just practicing. I mean, hours and hours and hours sitting at the piano, taking the hymn book and open it up and try to play any particular song in the hymn book. And that was great, great learning. So, uh, that's, that was the beginning, and I call it the foundation of my music. And then the songwriting part of it came not by design, or certainly not by me anyway. I was sitting at my piano one evening after work, which is the way I relax. I, I would come home after a hard day at work and just sit on the piano and play something. And this particular evening, I sat down and I played this tune. And I didn't think about it as writing a song. I didn't even know, really think that I was playing something original. It's just, I knew I'd never heard this before and it just sounded pretty on the piano and I just played it. And I, it was a song, it had a verse and a chorus and I played it all the way through. It never changed. And it was like, whenever I, when I was playing it, I could hear what notes were supposed to be played before I actually played them. So it was very close to being like a familiar song, except it wasn't. And so I played it and I didn't think much about it. Two days later, or a couple of days later, my wife came home from work and she says, Dave, what is this song that I've got stuck in my head? I, <laughs> I've been humming it in my head all day long. What's the name of it? She hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. She says, what? You play it all the time and uh, it's got to have a name. I said, no, it's just something I made up. Well, she got all excited and said, well, have you written it down? I said, well, no, I've got it up here in my mind. I'm not going to forget it. She said, no, you better write it down. Something might happen to you and that song would be gone. I said, okay. So I wrote it down on a piece of paper, the melody and the chords, put it in the piano bench. A couple of years later, some friends of ours had a little baby girl. Her name was Rachel. And up to this point, that song did not have a name. Linda and I had tried to come up with a name. Nothing ever fit. Well, when we were asked to be Rachel's godparents, we were sitting in the church at Rachel's christening service. And I'm sure you've been to child's christening services that they're all so precious and tender and very sweet anyway. So we're sitting there and I'm listening to the minister say all these beautiful words about little baby Rachel. And, and up at the front of the church on the middle of the platform is a baby grand piano. 
caught my eye, of course. And so at the end of the formal part of the service, I punched Linda and I said, what do you think about me playing this song now as part of the service? This little tune that I've written. She said, that's a great idea. So I asked the family and the minister if it'd be okay. And I went over to the piano and I sat down and I played this tune. And as I played it, I noticed that I was getting a little bit emotional about it. I could hear the sniffles and the <clears throat> clearing of the throat in the audience. And it, it was a very moving piece of music. When I finished playing it, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's Song in her honor. And that's how the song got its name. And it was just perfect. And from then on, there was no doubt about the name of that song. It was Rachel's Song. And that's how it got its name. That's beautiful. Yeah. So they do like baby blessings in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And there's other things, but I don't I don't think I've really been to a, a Christianing <laughs> before. So would you be able to like I know I've heard about them, but well, it's basically just basically saying nice uh, words of blessing. You know how you will bless somebody, you know, whether it's if somebody sneezes and you say bless you, <laughs> I guess that's a, a miniature blessing of some kind. But when you have a service for a little bit, an infant that basically when you're raised in a in a Christian organization, a church, you want the, the child to have its beginnings to in as part of the church. And so that the service, at least in a Christian church, is just to offer blessings on the, the child. It, it's it's more of a it's kind of a ritual, uh, uh, a, a sacrament kind of thing. But it's 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 just an important beginning of the religious life of a baby of a baby girl or a baby boy. So that was it was such an important for us to be actually be there as her godparents. And uh, so that was the beginning of my journey really, with Rachel's song as a, a, a song that really changed my life. It, uh, as my book says, that touched by the music, I was certainly touched by the music of Rachel's song. And then I later, with, with the rest of the story of what happened with the song after that, it has literally touched millions of lives around the world and continues to today because it's still played lots and lots of times, probably thousands, if not millions of times around the world today. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, it, you know, so it's very similar. I know from like different baby blessings I've been to, it really does hit you. Like this person has such an amazing opportunity to make an impact with their life and with their song of life as it plays, it can influence and inspire so many people. And so that's something I've wished for is like, can I, is there's somebody that recorded the things that were said about me when I was <laughs> blessed, but there is no such record that I know of, but it's mm -hmm. a really beautiful thing, you know, that we all get to play our tune while we're, while we're here. And it sounds like you've really made a good use of that opportunity. Well, it's one where I did not sit and just basically leave it in the piano bench. The, the, the key a lesson I hear that I think for the listeners today is that when you have something of that uh, significance, that special, don't hide it or don't put it in a piano bench or don't just don't put it away. You take action and do something with it. And those are small steps. It's not a big giant leap. You know, I went from that was my first song I ever wrote. I was 33 years old at that time when I wrote that song. And now I'll be 75 years old in a, in a week. And I have written over 120 songs. I have 14 albums of music, 11 piano music books that I've published. And the music has gone around the world, literally, 
and physically as well through my, it started out as cassette tapes and then CDs, and then it was digital downloads, and then it was digital streaming and is today digital streaming of my music. So the, the technology has changed, the platform or the physical nature of it has changed now to it's more virtual and digital, but the actual music itself, and when you, after this podcast, I want everybody to go to my website and listen to Rachel's song because you go to my homepage, there's a link right on the homepage to click and play it. Don't do it now. Stay with us right here. Don't leave the podcast. I want you to listen to Rachel's song because the, the song that you're going to hear when you hear Rachel's song played is the original demo recording that I got made in 1986 just for fun and just for enjoyment of us and, the fa and Rachel's family. It's a demo recording of a song. And that recording changed my life as well because that introduced me to the music business and the recording industry. It introduced me to a wonderful young man, Gary Prim, who's the artist that arranged and first recorded Rachel's song for me. And that taught me how wonderful and skilled these studio musicians are. Uh, you, I'm sure, Dallin, that you probably know some, and they're just, they can sit down and play anything, and it just sounds so beautiful. They're gifted. I know your church is just full of those kind of people, and uh, they're just so musically gifted, it's unbelievable. And so that was the beginning of my uh, journey with my music business because I saw I was still working at AT&T in my day job, but my music was kind of my evening and weekend at that point. But I saw the beginnings of a business opportunity because I saw the response from listeners. It got played on the radio all over the country, over 400 radio stations eventually. And that's another long story about how I did that. But needless to say, it got played on the radio. People would hear it on the radio, call the radio station and ask, track me down, get my address and phone number and, and want a copy of it for themselves. So I began to get letters from everybody. And over the years, I have received letters and notes from over 50,000 people from my music. 50,000. I mean, it's boxes and boxes of letters and notes and physical letters in my in my basement down here. And I took many of those really special notes and uh, letters and put them in a, in one chapter in my book. It's chapter 21. I've got about 22 pages in this book. Wow. Nothing but excerpts of these letters that I've gotten over the years and just the ones. And a friend of mine told me, he says, well, he said, I would call this book maybe a, a two Kleenex box book. He said, these are really touching stories that will bring a tear to your eye real easily. So it, those stories and letters are what encouraged me and told me that I was doing the right thing and that I needed to keep on doing it. And uh, in, like, for example, when I quit my job at AT&T, I'd been there like 44 years or something. I wasn't old enough to retire. I didn't have enough years of service to retire from AT&T. Been there only 22 and a half years. I think 25 or 30 was the magic number. Well, I didn't want to hang around another two or three or four or five years and miss that opportunity to do something on my own. So I quit my job and deciding to quit my job was a decision that I didn't take lightly because I, I grew up thinking that I'm going to work for this large, wonderful corporation for my whole career, probably 30 years or so and retire with a good retirement, all these kind of things. But in the meantime, the entrepreneur 
aspects of having my own business, being able to make a living doing what I want to do and what I'm, God's gifts have allowed me to do was important. And so making that decision to quit my job was really tough. I remember sitting in church one Sunday morning and I'm sitting there before the service really began. They were just playing organ music. And, and I'm thinking, how will I know? when I'm supposed to quit my job. You know, these important life decisions, you know, like <laughs> let's say you meet the what you think is going to be the, the love of your life. How will I know that's the person I need to marry? How, will, how do I know that kind of thing? Well, there are certain things in life that you really cannot 100% know, but you can sure have a, a very good, solid feeling about it. Well, that's how I felt about leaving my job. I, I wanted to know, I wanted some confirmation. And then I remembered that that week, I had gotten a letter from a man that didn't know me. I didn't know him, but he, it was a simple note that simply said, Dave Combs, creating and producing music is what God put you on this planet to do. And it signed his name. And I thought, hmm. I said, well, Lord, you must think I am a totally dense Christian because here you have sent me thousands of letters from people. They didn't know me, but the message is clear. They're telling me, this is blessing my life, Dave Combs. This is what you need to do. And in essence, get on with it. <laughs> and I, I kind of chuckled to myself there in the church service. And I thought, wow, <laughs> it took me this long. I must have like hit me overhead with a hammer to get my attention. But uh, that's when I decided, okay, I, it's clear to me now what I need to do. And I told Linda after church, and I said, tomorrow, I'm having lunch with my boss, and I'm handing him my letter of resignation. And that's what I did. So that's how, that's the story of how I came to the, the personal decision to quit my job and do my music full time. Beautiful. It's a very beautiful uh, tale. It makes me just uh, just like, yeah, you figure out when your song's playing, there's these different instruments, there's these different things. It's like, I want more of that. And I love how you didn't just go into this super lightly. I think there's some people that do and you just went into it very gradually. And I know uh, I'm going to definitely pick up the book. I want to read just those different stories and, and tales. Do you have any like parting remarks for anybody that might be struggling in college, is bouncing around from job to job, trying to find their place in the world? Well, yes, I do. I, I look on back on my, my life because I was once when the, where they were. I was you know, young and trying to decide what do I do and how do I develop as a person. Even after I got my job and, and Linda and I got married a year later, and we're always struggling. How do we improve ourselves? How do you to keep growing? How do you con do in a, a continuous learning? Just because you graduate from college on, in my case, June 16th, 1969, on the 17th of June, my, June I don't stop learning. <laughs> you got to keep on learning. Well, you need to educate yourself, first of all, and I love reading. And there's a, a whole bunch of good books. that I'm, I have a library that's probably got hundreds of books up here that I've read over the years. And, you know, they're, they're simple little books like this was one that I got. I don't remember what the year of this was, but The Magic of Thinking Big. Yes, 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 yes. You, have I you love, read that one? Yes, yes, yes. I read that when I was 17. I have it around here somewhere. Just give me a sec. <laughs> All right. Well, isn't that amazing? Yeah, well, let's see. Where was this published? Oh, my goodness. 1959. Oh, wow. I was only 12 years. That was when I was planting potatoes when this book was written. 
Oh, my goodness. By David Schwartz. And great chapter titles, too. Believe you can succeed and you will. Cure yourself of excusitis. Failure disease. Sorry, Dave, I didn't get any of that. I've just been looking for the book. That's all right. I, I was entertaining your audience in the meantime. It's This book was copyrighted in 1959 when I was planting potatoes. <laughs> Can you believe that's the that's amazing? Just give me a couple, maybe one more. All right, I just turned over like half of my room trying to find it. I need to find it. I've been I've been thinking about that because it had such a impact on me when I read it when I was seventeen. I was like, this really resonates with me. It makes me want to like start businesses and just I don't know. It just really touched me and. Yeah, that's one of my favorite books. I've been thinking about rereading it, so I'll totally uh, do that again. But do you have like a favorite part from the book? Like seriously, anybody who's oh. listened to the podcast for any any length of time, I talk about it in almost every other episode. I just love that book so much. Well, you know, the, the, just the chapter titles are an inspiration. You know, when you believe you can succeed and you will. And cure yourself of excusitis, the failure disease. That's what we've been talking about. Get off your butt and do something. And then number three, build confidence and destroy fear. How to think big, how to think and dream creatively. You are what you think you are. And that one is really important. If you think of your success self as successful, you will be successful. You are successful. You manage your environment. Go first class. Don't think small. Make your attitudes your allies. Think right towards people and get the action habit. Now, this is a great chapter 10. Get the action habit. Take action. And my good friend, Jack Canfield, who also wrote a wonderful book, which you may or may not have read yet. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. It's called The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. And and it is, <laughs> it's almost 600 pages, but I call it a PhD in entrepreneurship in a book. It, it, if you go through this book and if you don't, if you take action from this book, if you don't succeed, I'd be totally shocked because it is absolutely a, it's the Bible of business success right here. So, and, and Jack Canfield, by the way, wrote the forward to my book. He and I got acquainted a a couple of years ago and uh, he has been a huge supporter and encouraged me to write the book. And he wrote the forward to my book. So and that and another little book that I think that I would encourage anybody to read is called When God Winks. For those of you that think life is all coincidence and random and has no purpose, read this little book called When God Winks by Squire Rushnell. And he coined the phrase God Wink. And what a God Wink is, is when something happens in your life and you look back on that and you say, that was no accident that that happened. That person I met on that street corner that day and that changed my life. What's the odds of us happening to just meet? That was no accident. That was a God wink. And I've, in my book, I talk about a lot about the God winks in my life where I've, things have happened that just were looking back were absolutely no accident. They were all, had divine purpose. So anyway, kind of to wrap this up a little bit, I want people to go take away from this that I don't care whether you're a composer, a singer, or a speaker, or a writer, or whatever your gifts are, everybody has gifts. Whether it's a gift of a great personality, or a talent of some kind, or a skill, you have those gifts. 
And the point is you take action and you nourish those and you plant those and you go ahead and share them and move ahead. And don't be afraid to take action because action is on, only after action does anything ever happen with what you've got. Now, everything will, as I said, will not work out perfectly every time, but you'll learn something from it. Guarantee that. And eventually you'll find a way to, if you have an obstacle, I always say you can go around it, under it, over it, or through it. But there's always a way to get around an obstacle or roadblock. Don't just stop and give up. Never, ever give up and never let anybody steal your dream. You are a gift from God Almighty yourself, and he has a plan for you in your life, and you need to fulfill that and take action and do it. And I've just been so blessed with my music that it still continues to bless not only me and my family and friends or whatever, but my new family and friends all around the world as well. And I just encourage people to uh, the best way to get a hold of me and my music. Just go to my website. It's my last name, Combs, C-O-M-B-S, CombsMusic.com. And when you get on my homepage, you'll see my book on the left-hand side. And right below it will be a link where you can go click on that, and it'll take you right to Amazon where you can buy my book in paperback, an e-book as a Kindle book, or an audible book. You can listen to me read it to you for eight hours. <laughs> if you want to hear my East Tennessee accent for eight hours, you can listen to me read it. And on the other side of my homepage is my CD of Rachel's song. Right below it, click on the link. It'll take you right to Amazon where you can download the CD, download the album or the song or buy a CD or stream it if you're an uh, Amazon Music person. And in the middle of the page, about where my face is, if you're watching this, is a link that says Play Rachel's Song. And when you click on that link, you're going to hear the full High fidelity version of Rachel's song. It's not edited or anything. It's just the original demo recording that I got made in 1986. Totally unedited or unmastered. Re I did not remaster it. It's, it's what I heard when I heard it for the first time played by Gary Prim. So it's going to hopefully touch your life and, uh, and listen to some of my other music as well. I have 14 albums worth. It'll keep you busy for a while. And you can also... Go to my YouTube channel on the Combs Music there and see some of my photography with my music in the background. So it's you can enjoy the music in lots of ways, and I encourage you to do so. CombsMusic.com, and there you go. That's that's amazing. Yeah, the first thing I first time I heard Rachel's song was probably like an hour and a half ago, just here in my cousin's house, just hanging out, and it just I don't know, it just resonate with me there's like a serenity to it just a very peaceful serenity and kind of a otherworldly feeling a little bit i don't know just really really was special so and for me i really love holding on to special memories like that and when they resonate and, and stuff and i always be able to be back like the first time i heard it so yeah i'd recommend uh, everybody check it out and, and give it a give it a listen and I haven't read the success principles. I've heard good things about it from multiple sources. So I definitely will be giving that a look. Mm -hmm. And also the God wink. I think probably heard about that from somebody, but yeah, for me, this interview has been a little bit of a God wink, like just keep, <laughs> keep up what you're doing. Keep, keep trying. And, and uh, yeah, really inspiring to have you on. I'll have links to all your stuff in the show notes and maybe we'll have you again on in the future and follow. I would love it. Things. That would, that would be great. I would love it. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Keep up the great work. 
Well, thank you for inviting me. And like you said, we may do this again and it would be my pleasure to do so. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that'd be fun. After I read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. So that was my interview with Dave Combs. He is amazing, and I'm really thankful I got to talk with him. Definitely check out his website. I have it in linked in the show notes. And yeah, I don't know. Whatever things you felt from this episode, I'd recommend you act on those as soon as possible. Dave has done many podcast interviews, and he's really living his best life. And really just taking those tiny little steps forward will lead you to really amazing things. And Dave is definitely a good example of making the most of things, even when you don't really have a ton to work with. I mean, the technology back then wasn't that great, but he worked with it and he put his whole will and soul into it. And he listened to his wife too. And that led to lots of awesome stuff. So thank you so much for listening as always. Definitely recommend you take some action on what you felt. Definitely am doing that as well. And yeah, So thank you for listening. Don't forget to heal today and it'll be a better tomorrow.